Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us again for Destiny Church Online. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this time of worship and to receive God's Word together. Even though we're not here in the same building, we're the same body of Christ, and it's a very precious thing that you would invite us into your home today. So I'd invite you to open with me. We're going to continue our series in the book of Acts, and so Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. And what I want you to know that in these troubled times, and 2020 is a year like I can't remember. These are troubled times that we're living in. We're still in the middle of a global pandemic. There's social unrest and unease in all of really the systems of our society. The pandemic is still here, it has not gone away, and we're heading like a steamroller, or not a steamroller, a freight train into a brick wall with this 2020 election. It's only going to ramp up from here to the end of the year, and we're not even halfway through it yet. But in these troubled times, there is a sure foundation for us, and it is God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 tells us that we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. It is firm and it is secure. You know what an anchor does is it, it keeps a ship from being blown off course or, or, or being blown away and tossed around by the waves. And, and certainly in life and in the storms of life, there are things that are pushing on us, pressures, but our soul is anchored to the sure foundation of some truths that do not change. And because of that, our lives, we, we don't have to be tossed back and forth by whatever's happening in the world. And so today, we are going to go deep today. We're going to go deep into God's Word. We're going to go deep looking at the nature and the character of God. And we're going to cover a, a lot of Scripture today. We're going to move very quickly. And so if you have a, a pen or a notepad or something to write with, I'd encourage you to grab that, maybe jot some things down as we go along that you may want to revisit later. Of course, you can always jump back on and watch the video again. And as we cover a, a lot of scripture, what I'm hoping to do is to lay for you a sure and solid foundation for your life and how to interpret the events of your life. As we press in deep today, we're doing so so that our souls will be anchored to something secure in these troubled times. So Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. And then I've got two points for you today, just two, for you to help you and to bless you and to anchor your soul in the midst of 2020 today. So Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it says, About that time Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is the apostle James. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Peter is in maximum security lockdown. He's chained on either arm to two soldiers inside of a jail cell. Outside the cell are four, four sentries of four guards each, making sure that Peter cannot escape. Verse 7 says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. There many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the door, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. It's so funny, they were praying for Peter to be delivered and when he actually was, they couldn't even believe it. They say, you've lost your mind. You're beside yourself. You, you've gone crazy. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James. Now, this is not James the Apostle that he's talking about. James the Apostle has just been martyred earlier in this passage. He's talking about James the just, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to, the, uh, to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become to Peter. And after, Her uh, Her and after Herod had searched for him, he did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea and to Caesarea to spend time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne. And he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. 
Lord, through our time together, I pray that you would open up the truths of your word to our souls. Lord, that you would minister to us. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would anchor us in the midst of these troubled times. Lord, that we would not be tossed to and fro back and forth by every news report, by everything that's going on in the world today. Lord, we're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Help us, Lord, to look past the events of our lives, the events in our world, and to see the hope that we have in you. Lord, help us to see and to know that you are in control and that you are good. We give you the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The first point I want to share with you today is simply that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We see this so clearly in this passage. He is in control. God is ruling. God is reigning. Nothing is outside of or beyond his control. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. God is in control. Herod wants to kill Peter. He arrests him. He puts him in jail. The night before, he's going to execute Peter publicly to please the Jewish people. God says, nope, not going to happen. He sends an angel to go and to rescue Peter, and he delivers Peter. Herod is a bad guy. He's an evil, wicked man. And finally, God has enough with him, and he says, you're done. He sends an angel of the Lord, and he strikes him down dead. Herod, this king that impressed so many people with his speech, becomes a worm buffet as the worms come and eat him for lunch. God is in control of these events. And the sovereignty of God, the truth that he is in control of all things, it is a truth that anchors our soul. Because we can rest assured that no matter what we are going through in life, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, no matter how confusing or, or dark the situation can be, we rest assured that God is in control. The situations of our life are not above God, but that he rules and reigns above the situations of our life. And as we go through hardships, as we go through confusing and dark and troubled times, we steady our souls and our hearts by confessing, God, you are in control. God, you are in control. And I am choosing to trust in you. This is a truth that is not only shown so clearly in Acts chapter 12, but this truth is sounded forth from all of the pages of Scripture. God is in control. The sovereignty of God is on every single page of Scripture in one form of another. It is explicit that God is sovereign. Psalm 15.3 says, Our God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. Psalm 135.6, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens, on the earth, in the seas, and all their depths. 
What the psalmist is saying poetically is that God does whatever he wants up there, down here, and even down below. That there is nothing above him. He is above it all. Job 42.2, after Job goes through his whole test and trial and experience, he says this about God. I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Not only is God in control, but he cannot be out of control. He cannot not be in control. No plan of God can be thwarted, averted. His plans and purposes stand. Finally, Ephesians 1, 11, speaking of Christ, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, listen to this, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereign. All things are working according to his plan, according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his will. And this is just a small selection of verses. There are many, many, many more. I wish I had time to go into Matthew 10, 29 or Colossians 1, 16, Isaiah 45, 7, Proverbs 16, 33, Daniel 4, 35. The whole book of Esther is this incredible story about the providence and the sovereignty of God ruling over even the king of kings at the time. The highest kingdom of the world, the Assyrians. God rules and reigns even over them. God is in control. But as we look at our text today, these, these stories, and really these three stories that Luke puts together into one story, there's an uncomfortable truth that arises to the surface because what we see is it's not as simple as Herod bad, Peter good. Because what about James? What about the Apostle James? As we look and see that, yes, God is in control. Yes, God is sovereign. There's some uncomfortable questions that arise. Why does God deliver Peter and not James? Why doesn't God kill Herod before Herod? kills James. God has the power to rescue James. He rescued Peter. He certainly could have rescued James. God obviously has the power to strike down Herod. Why doesn't he do it earlier and spare James? When we look at these questions and we read the whole chapter, we, we can't escape the fact that God is in control. And it leads us to only one conclusion, and it is a tough pill to swallow. James being martyred wasn't outside of God's will. It wasn't outside of God's plan. It wasn't outside of God's purpose. James being martyred was God's will and plan and purpose. What other conclusion can we come to? The next 
two stories right after the martyrdom of James, right after Herod has him killed as a way to boost his political points. This persecution arising against the church, right, right after that, on, on the heels of that, are these two stories that clearly demonstrate that God is sovereign and that he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. How can we escape the fact that James being martyred was his will, was his plan? It is God's purpose. And here is where I want to move on to our second point today. And that is that not only is God sovereign, God is also good. God is good. He's not only sovereign. Yes, he is sovereign, but God is also good. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. What this means is that everything God always does every single time is always perfect. Perfection. God is righteous. Everything he does is always right. Period. Always. He is good. Romans 8.28 is a verse that helps strengthen our hearts in the goodness and the plan of God. Many of us know it by heart, and, and that is that we know, God's people, we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that God is working all things together for good. Now, it's easy to see God's goodness in him rescuing Peter. That's not hard to see. We see that and we shout, yay, God. We can even see God's goodness and his justice on display as he strikes down a wicked and evil king, King Herod. That might strike a little bit of fear into our hearts. The fear of God, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. But we can see, yeah, that's good. We see your goodness reflected in that, God. But what about James? How is this good? And as we begin to tackle this question, the first thing that we must acknowledge is the enormous gulf between our perspective and God's perspective. Between the way we see the world and the way God sees the world, there is this enormous expanse. God even declares in his word in Isaiah 55, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, that is a massive expanse. That is a huge gulf. That is a huge difference between the way God thinks and the way we think, between the way we see the world and the way God sees the world between our ways, that's our plan, our will, our purpose, our desires, and God's ways, God's plans, God's will, God's purpose, God's desire. Now, there's a couple reasons for this huge difference. The first is that God is infinite. 
God is the Alpha and the Omega. God sees the beginning from the end. God sees how every event will play perfectly into his perfect and good plan. And we don't. We're not infinite. We are finite. Our perspective is limited. Our understanding is limited. Our thoughts are limited. God's are not. The other reason for this difference between God's thoughts and our thoughts is that God is perfect and holy and just and righteous. And in our flesh, we are not. Though in Christ we have been declared righteous, in our flesh, in our soul, our mind, our will, emotions, they have been tainted, distorted by sin. We battle our flesh every single day. Our understanding, our perspective is, is filled with the thoughts and the ideologies and the value system of the world. And so we don't see things the way God sees them. We don't think about things the way God thinks about them. There's this battle that rages, this sin in our lives, and it still affects us. Clouds our view, distorts our perspective. But here's the truth. God is glorified when his people die in faith. God is glorified when his people remain faithful, even under the most intense of persecution. I would invite you on your own time to read through Hebrews chapter 11. This, what's called the hall of fame of faith. The, all of the great men and women of God who remain faithful to God throughout their lifetime. The second half of that chapter begins to talk about people who suffered greatly for their faith. And how it wasn't their faith that delivered them from their suffering, but it was their faith that enabled them to suffer. You should really go and read that passage. I think it will be a blessing to you. You see, not only is God glorified by rescuing Peter, which he is, God is also glorified by the faithfulness of martyrs. There's this saying that goes like this, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. We only need to flip back a couple pages in the Bible, the story of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. How even at his death, he prayed for those who persecuted him, for those who were killing him. And watching him being martyred was a young man named Saul. God answered Stephen's prayer. The effect of that event, no doubt, touched Saul's heart and life for the rest of his life. We read stories of missionary history. There's the story of Jim Elliot, who went and ministered to the Aka Indians. How they threatened to kill him and his, his fellow companions, yet they would not leave and they continued to preach the gospel to them until one day the tribesmen murdered Jim and his companions brutally on the beach, leaving his wife a widow, his children fatherless, 
his companions, wives, widows, his companions, children's children as fatherless. People implored Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, to leave, to come home. It's not safe. It's dangerous. They said, how can we leave? These people need the gospel. It was Jim who wrote in his diary, he is no fool who trades what he cannot keep to purchase that which he can never lose. Jim was willing to lay down his life, something you cannot keep, something that is fleeting. You see, this life is fleeting. It is a vapor. It is passing away. It goes by so quickly. We are here today and we are gone tomorrow. But there is an eternity beyond this life. Jim said, I will trade my life here, which I cannot keep, to purchase a reward for myself in heaven, which can never be taken away. Jim's wife, Elizabeth, stayed. Jim's companions, wives, and children, they stayed. Eventually, the tribe came to faith in Jesus Christ, and the very men who had murdered her husband went to Elizabeth and asked for forgiveness. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We only need to look back in our own history as a church. The story of, uh, of Jerry and Nola Witt, who went to Mexico to preach the gospel. Jerry, a missionary pilot, passing out tracts, dropping Bibles in a plane, is shot down, martyred. Him and a companion dying for their faith, for their witness of Jesus Christ. The people who shot down the plane, they went and they, they got Jerry's body and they, they put him on display in the public square of the city saying, this is what will happen to everyone who preaches the gospel here. When that happened, Nola, a young widow in her 20s with three young children, the oldest was eight, she was implored by people, by her family, come back home, come back home. She said, I will stay and preach the gospel. Shortly thereafter, another young man came and they were married. That's Frank Warren, Frank and Nola Warren. They stayed there. They preached the gospel to those people. God raised up hundreds, planted hundreds of churches in that area. That whole region transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of those young boys is a man named Marcos Witt. Marcos is the great, the, one of the number one selling music artists in all of Latin America. God has used his music to touch millions. But Marcos Witt wouldn't have been Marcos Witt if Jerry Witt hadn't been martyred. You see, we don't see what God is doing. We, we don't see the end from the beginning. But let me tell you, not only is God sovereign, God is also good. Martyrdom, laying down of the life, is the ultimate act of witness. We're called to be witnesses. In fact, the Greek word for, min, for witness is the word martis. The word martyr and witness, they come from the exact same word because they mean the exact same thing. Now, if we're being honest, there's a part of us that does not like this. I know this is difficult to come to terms with. Why? Well, because we want to be comfortable. 
We want to have a life of peace and security and happiness and comfort and ease and leisure. We don't want to be thrust through with a sword. We don't want to have our heads cut off. We don't want to be shot down preaching the gospel and die a fiery death in flames. We don't want that. We want peace and comfort and security. We want our American life, our American dream, and we want to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of it as a get out of hell free pass. We want to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top of our life as some fire insurance. We want to continue to have our kingdom and have God bless our little kingdom. But the story of James and Peter and Herod, it disrupts all of that. Peter is rescued. James is not. God is still in control. Later on, Peter is captured. He's put in prison. And he himself is martyred, crucified upside down. But Jesus in John 21 had actually told Peter this was going to happen to him. It wasn't outside of God's plan and purpose. And in fact, other than the apostle John, all of the, all of the apostles suffered a brutal martyr's death. Every last one of them not only lived for Christ, they died for Christ. And God is just as glorified when his people remain faithful in suffering as when he removes the suffering. Paul, who suffers with some kind of thorn in the flesh, he prays to God three times and says, God, would you remove this pain from my life? God says, no, I will not remove it from your life. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God says, I'm not going to remove it, but I'm going to give you the power and the strength to persevere through it. What if God's plan for your life isn't that you, you will be successful or wealthy or healthy? What if God's plan for your life isn't to live out the American dream? What if God's plan for your life is to die a martyr's death? Are you okay with that? We need to realize that our will, our plan, our purpose is oftentimes, if hardly ever, God's will, God's plan, God's purpose. And this is why Jesus taught us to pray when he taught us to pray. He said, pray this way, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus taught us to pray to the Father who is good and who is loving. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy are you. God, you are holy. God, you are perfect. And God's holiness humbles us and leads us into praying. Not my will. Not my kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. How do I know what God's will is? God's will and my will, they're not the same. How do I know what God's will is for my life? How do I find his will, his purpose? Well, thankfully, he's shown us in his word. We don't have to wander around. We don't have to go and receive some sort of word from somebody. 
God's already given it to us in his word in black and white. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says so clearly, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What's God's will? What's God's purpose for your life? That you would be sanctified. What does that mean? It means that you would be made holy. The sin and, and, and the, the cling of sin and the cling of, of the world and the desires of the flesh in your life, the grip that those things have on you, that they would be broken off of you. That the world's ideologies, the world's way of thinking, the world's value system would be purged from your mind and that you would have a kingdom mindset, a Christ Jesus mindset. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your holiness. Romans 8, 29, we read Romans 8, 28, which talks about the good that God's going to work in our lives. He's working all things for our good. Romans 8, 29 tells us what the good actually is. It says that he is predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the same thing as sanctification, that the character and the nature of Christ would be birthed in you, that you would be made like Jesus, that you would be like Christ. This is the good that God is after for you. And God is committed to helping you and to doing whatever it takes to move you to that place of Christ-likeness. He will do anything that he has to do to sanctify you, to make you holy, to make you like Jesus. And this is why God gave Paul the thorn in the flesh. It says clearly that he was given a thorn in the flesh to humble him. You see, Paul was on the verge of being puffed up with pride, of becoming prideful. God, wanting to birth the character of Christ in Paul, gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble like Jesus. Jesus, who's the ultimate example of humility as he came from heaven to earth. God become a man, lived a life without sin, died to redeem sinners, rose again, to give us new life, coming again to establish his kingdom without end. That humility, one of the many attributes in nature of Christ, God was committed to seeing that birth in Paul's life. God is also committed to you to see the nature and the character of Christ produced in you. This is God's will for your life, that you would be holy that you would be sanctified, that you would be like Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, like Christ. Now, it's not through ease and comfort and leisure that we have Christ's character birthed in us. Through ease and comfort and leisure, we become lazy, we become slothful. The world finds its place in our heart. But it's through hardship, difficulty, and suffering that the nature of Christ is birthed in us, that our soul is separated from the world and the values of the world and the things of the world, which is temporary fleeting and under the dominion and control 
and the value system of Satan. God's plan for you is not that you would look like the world, but that you would look like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Whatever suffering it is that we're going through, God is storing up for us glory. And it's the glory of being made like Christ. The glory beyond all comparison. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. In the world, in this life, there will be hardship, there will be pain, there will be difficulty. You may not get what you want in this life. That is not what Jesus came to bring and to give you. That is not what God has promised you. God has promised you holiness. God has promised you sanctification. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you may lose your job. In the world, you may suffer injustice. In the world, you may be hated. In the world, you may lose loved ones. In the world, you may lose a child. In the world, you may have chronic illness. In the world, you may suffer poverty. In this life, you may never marry. You may be lonely. In this life, you may never have children. There is hardship and difficulty in this life. In the world, you will have tribulation. But Jesus goes on to say, take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, what that doesn't mean that Jesus has overcome the world, it doesn't mean that we won't have tribulation. <laughs> Some people read that verse. They say, it says, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And they say, oh, great, Jesus has overcome the world. I won't have tribulation. No, no, he just said, in the world you will have tribulation, but we take heart. We steady our souls. Our souls are anchored to this truth that even in this world, Jesus has overcome it. What does that mean? It means he is sovereign over the events of tribulation that we have in our life and in this world. That he is in control and that he is good. And so the hardships, the difficulty, the suffering, the pain, the darkness, they're not outside of God's will, but they're part of God's good and perfect and holy and just and righteous plan for your life to produce Christ's character within you. This is God's good, perfect will for you. Because Jesus has overcome the world, these things that the enemy means for evil against you, these things will not destroy you, but these things are a means, uh, they, are, they are a means of God perfecting you. And what all of this highlights for us is that there is a gap between our thoughts and God's thoughts, between God's ways and our ways. There is a gap between God's will and our will. And to resolve this gap, we need to look no further than Jesus, who on the night before he was crucified prayed this prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is our example. We follow him. Every day we pray, not my will, 
but yours be done. So can God deliver you like he delivered Peter? Yes, he can. From every hardship, from every difficulty, from whatever is ailing you, from any pain, from any disease, yes, he can. And we pray that he would. But will he? In this life, we don't know. In the next life, we are guaranteed that. But in this life, he may answer no. But what we do know is whatever God decides, it is the right decision. And it is for your good. It is because he loves you. And he wants to draw you closer to himself and to produce his character within you. In this world, there is so much heartache, pain, disappointment. But we have this confident assurance that no matter how hard life may be, it is not meaningless. It is not purposeless. That in all of the pain, God has a purpose. In all of the hardship, God is working through it. And this is how big and powerful and good God is, that he can take evil and work it for our good. I may not understand it. I may not see his plan and his purpose unfold. But I trust in God and in his word. And in that, he is glorified. I know that this is a deep message. Certainly we didn't, are, are not able to get into all the depths of the sovereignty of God in this short time. But I want to encourage you with this truth. God is sovereign and God is good. I want to leave you with a question. I, I want you to ponder this. Have you truly surrendered your life to God? Have you truly given him all of you? Everything. Are you able to pray, pray that prayer like Jesus? Not my will, but yours be done. I want to encourage you, surrender your life, all of it, to Jesus Christ. It will be for your good. God is committed to your good because he loves you. And he will accomplish your good because he is sovereign. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us, that instructs us, that is a steady anchor for our soul in these troubled times. Lord, what we're going through in this world is not outside of your plan. Lord, your word shows us and teaches us so clearly that it is your plan. And so show us how we can live for you, how your character, how your nature can be birthed in our lives in this time. Help us to be faithful unto you, to bring you glory and praise. Help us not to live for our will and for our kingdom, but for your will and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.